Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shamba, welcoming you to the October 27, 2015 edition of Ask a Leader. Well, today we'll look at the persistently declining infrastructure in America with UCI economist Daniel Bogart to take up why and how addressing the immense infrastructure backlog during the Great Recession is the stimulus package lurking in plain sight. After chewing on that huge bite, we shall turn to financial planning with respect to student debt, busting a few myths along the way with Karen Caparasso, certified financial planner. We'll be right back after a short station break. Welcome back to the show. My first guest is UCI economist Daniel Bogart. I've puzzled, or perhaps the word is fretted, over how far our country is willing either to run our infrastructure into the ground or delay moving us into the 21st century. And I guess it's every time I read another Paul Krugman editorial, I'm reminded it's right there. The stimulus package is in the infrastructure reinvestment. So quaint or crumbled, our infrastructure could be getting a good deal more attention, especially as the Great Recession hangs on over us even now. Dan Bogart completed his B.A. in math and his B.S. in economics at the University of Minnesota and his M.A. and Ph.D. in economics at UCLA. His research interests include the politics of infrastructure in Britain during other centuries. But I know that there are lessons learned there and maybe it maybe it's a more homogenous society that was able to deal with their infrastructure situation that may not be comparable, but there may be lessons learned all the same. So Daniel Bogart joins me in studio today. Welcome to Ask a Leader. Thank you, Claudia. The Great Recession, I'm sorry, the Great Depression and the Great Recession, by the way, which is not over, as I've been mentioning, and we'll say it again, they have many aspects in common. Both were severe, long-lasting, both had an available labor pool, tending with protracted unemployment, interest rates were then low and are still low, and the nation's need of massive upgrade of infrastructure. The difference and I mean a really huge difference, though, is the stimulus package. We had the WPA, the, the CCC. We had all of those programs, but it's not happening now. Uh, the present conditions are, are perfect for this kind of stimulus package. But relatively speaking, would you think, though, that our need for this infrastructure is even greater than in the 1930s? Well, uh, the 1930s were a particularly bad time. I think even worse than today. Unemployment was at 25% at the depth of uh, the Great Depression. In all sectors, all ages, all um, broadly speaking. Broadly speaking, unemployment was, was much more severe than it is today. But I think it's a nice comparison to make. Um, at that time, uh, there were huge needs for infrastructure. There was a huge unemployment problem. Interest rates were low, and it was an obvious way to uh, help stimulate the economy and help propel long-run economic growth. So if I just may, I just want to make a few just Please. sort of general points about, um, I think, where we are uh, in our infrastructure. And I think, first of all, there's no doubt that the American economy would benefit from a lot of infrastructure investment at this moment. If you um, look throughout uh, various reports by respected organizations, Department of Treasury, American Society of Civil Engineers, and so on, 
you'll see that there's a the the valuation of our infrastructure at the moment is very bad so there's grades that are given to uh, various infrastructure sectors and our infrastructure state of infrastructure as a whole in the US and it's a bad grade. <laughs> it's a bad grade. No, it's a grade you wouldn't so want to bring home to your parents. Solid waste does yeah. the best. But uh, as you said, yeah. uh, in preparing for this, you were yeah. saying that the uh, American Society of Engineers, they have a vested interest in certain in advancing certain infrastructure. So right. I don't know if they see that solid waste management right. is infrastructure that's maybe low-hanging fruit, higher profit margins, and that kind of a thing. But uh, but the best grade for them is solid waste management. And the mo- lots of them are hovering in the Ds, folks, yeah, the yeah, other the, grades. The grades are generally bad. Um, and they all, and they also give us some some grades by sector, so they they make some recommendations on where investment is needed the most. But I think, as Claudia was suggesting, there's an issue here, and where do we put what sectors? First, one issue is how much should we invest in infrastructure as a whole, say compared to education uh, or health. Uh, another issue is how much should we invest in water, transportation, energy, sanitation, etc. And I think there we need to be very careful about. Uh, the reports that we're given. We have to ask, what are the interests of the groups that are arguing we should invest in transportation or we should invest in uh, sanitation? Those are groups that might expect a benefit from the contracts that are, that are awarded. So I think what we really need is a, um, we need a, we need a public di- a broad public dialogue on where we think infrastructure is needed. We need um, expertise in government, you know, we need our public officials to, um, you know, put their name on it and, and make a case for why infrastructure is needed in certain sectors. We do need to listen to the private sector and get their input as well. But I think we need a broad discussion of where infrastructure investments should occur because any one group uh, has an interest to push their own agenda. And I'll give you one example of that. There's uh, just last night on the news, there was a big report about the, uh, I think it's called the California Alliance for Jobs. They're emphasizing how poor our roads are in California. And there's no doubt <laughs> that the roads are in a poor state. But, you know, they have an interest in um, in developing road infrastructure. And we have to ask ourselves, hey, maybe, maybe rail transportation, uh, maybe building more schools. Those might be better investments. So we, sh- we need to have a dialogue about that. Right. I mean, and th- th- they're maybe not using as much a factor as another entity would that there's carbon footprints with choosing the, the, that mode of transportation that's using Definitely. the road. There's a, a sort of paternalism in investing infrastructure that directs consumers to other choices for transit and that kind of a thing. So there's a lot riding on where infrastructure is invested. So um, Definitely. Definitely. So... Well, you're talking about putting your name on it. Well, let's put <laughs> the name is getting only put on sequestration, spending caps, debt ceilings, and all mm-hmm. that kind of thing. We're running the clock. The leadership is running the clock on these really uh, very small details that, that were never an issue in previous legislative sessions. So it's, I think, for maybe economists and other policymakers, it must drive you nuts to see the sort of the literacy opportunity mm-hmm. dwindling around these kinds of these are very pedestrian things this is housekeeping let's move on let's let's talk about whether we need it where we put a new wing put another story on the house yeah i think um politics very frustrating and puzzling uh to lots of of experts and people who are trying to make um i think useful recommendations about what can you know benefit the the american economy the american public as a whole um i just on on the politics i would just make I make two comments. I think one problem is there is a 
particularly on the right, there is a distrust of public officials. So there's a sense in which if we gave the public works departments, the Department of Transportation, Department of Energy at the federal or the state or local level more money, they would not spend it wisely. Okay, so there's a lot of resistance to spending. And I think the high-speed rail project in California is a good example. Many people are upset with how that project was designed, is being implemented. And so that's just breeding more resistance. Right? So that's one issue. Um, I think also, though, we have to appreciate that infrastructure has distributional effects. Okay? And there are, it's going, in particular, it's going, some projects are going to benefit some groups more than others. They're going to benefit perhaps the, the working population, the higher income earning population, maybe less. In some other cases, they might benefit the poor population. Um, so we have to think about you know, what are the priorities of different groups? And I think for a lot, of, a lot of people, the main priority at the moment is health and education. And so uh, there, there's sort of a political gridlock in Washington where I think the groups that want health and education are, are perhaps not as open to spending in other areas. And then the groups that benefit a lot from infrastructure are also resistant to the health and education. So arguably some kind of grand bargain has to be made where we... we um, invest in all fronts certainly not equally but groups have to be able to come together and make come to an agreement about where investment occurred but right now it's the idea is almost like zero sum there's a fixed pot of money and each group is trying to grab as much as they can for their their projects and sort of resist others is, is my interpretation of it well the when i talk about literacy though it the zero sum isn't quite capturing it because when we the the stimulus package really could stimulate mm -hmm. a lot of labor sectors, so there's money going back into the economy, and where our GDP is up and running again. Mm -hmm. So I mean, I know that that was mm -hmm. a little bit uh, glib, but so that's that's a concern. No, definitely. I mean, there's um, there's there's huge benefits that can come from investing right now in infrastructure, and if we look abroad. That we no better evidence is that we, we can, look abroad. We can just we look see, across our border now. There's yeah. a new government moving yeah. in uh, in Canada, and that can be an example. We saw the Canadians managed their yeah. they, they were almost recession proof with some of their policy decisions with uh, yeah. investment banking and regulating and all that kind of yeah. a thing. So now we're going to see what they are doing. They've not taken right. the austerity measures uh, to the extent that we have and European countries have, and so uh, there, there, we can look just that nearer to see what's going to happen with invigorating yeah. their economy. We can look at we can look at uh, Canada, we can I mean we can look at China and and and, and they an argument has been made that their growth of the last 20 years has been to a large extent infrastructure driven. With all right. the highways and high speed rail that they've developed that has really propelled their economy and I think if we did the same in the US, we certainly would get those benefits and all so, sectors. Uh would, you know, on on a if you think Abroad. about just on a on on average, the return in infrastructure is, is is quite high. But like I said, in our in our U.S. political system, you know, when projects have distributional effects, we have a lot of discussion about them. The pipeline, there's many examples, but the the pipeline that uh, we're talking about building, that's likely to increase economic growth in the short run. Short, right? Uh, the the downside is it has it has negative spillover effects on the the landowners those local communities also there's perhaps a, a risk of disaster in the long run that we may not incorporate and the carbon footprint but, and the carbon footprint exactly but but 
if you build that pipeline, it's probably going to generate some economic growth, definitely in the ports and in the in the producing regions. And to be honest, with you, the U.S. the government and state governments could tax the the owners of the pipeline and actually get some of the benefits from that. But because it has so many distributional consequences and it has environmental consequences, uh, we have a hard time moving on those kind of projects. Well, do economists have a a, a, a a way of explaining what's the phenomenon of like infrastructure that it's it's not a very visible it's not in in the public's eye it's not a right. salient decline right. so what what might be the economic term and we were it's, we, it's not that it's a it's elastic in a public's eye it's just mm-hmm. invisible so it's even worse than an elastic decision well it's invisible Choice. until it goes wrong i think that's the uh one of the observations so when you start getting the potholes uh and they're not being filled you 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 realize that you complain about when the levee breaks of course it's disastrous when the bridge collapses but we as a public don't observe the year-to-year wear and tear on the infrastructure that's happening and so we don't we don't make that a priority so we react more to crises rather than the sort of the need for day-to-day investment there there have been studies that have been done that have shown that if you if you apply regular maintenance to roads rather than deferred maintenance yes. and big construction that you save, you know, maybe but, 20, 30% on your total costs of infrastructure. And so huge. the, this, the system of, of waiting till it breaks and then react is, is actually costing us money. But, but I think the public is, is not as aware of it until it goes wrong. And so politicians aren't, aren't reacting. I mean, when you're, when you're, your child's school um, isn't being run very well, or the teacher's not very good. You notice that right away, and you complain. Or when when the healthcare system is is not working for you, you react right away. So infrastructure, because it has this sort of long horizon and it deteriorates and then goes goes bad, maybe generates a different reaction. Right, right. Wow, first the small government folks that twenty to thirty percent reduction in expenditures on regular maintenance versus deferred maintenance. Right. That that's that's smaller government. Yeah. It's a smaller contract. Yeah, there's lots of, um, I say, uh, technologies that we could adopt, or techniques, or funding mechanisms that we could implement that would be better for the vast majority of, of interest in the United States. But we, uh, the interesting thing right now is we're not able to really um, implement those types of projects, and so that's where the situation that we're in right now. So some things that, that are yeah. metering how uh, how things are performing and that kind of a thing, sort of uh, early warning systems that this this particular water conduit is about ready to go off in West Los Angeles and flood UCLA or right. uh, I mean, those kinds of things or yeah. So there's um, okay. So there's there's funding schemes. So there's sort of funding technologies, if you will, using user fees or we will implementing more, right there, um, you know, deferred, ma- you know, sort of organizational innovations, if you will. But on the other hand, there's technology. Uh, right now we're going, we're, we're, there's a tremendous period of technological change in, related to the infrastructure sector um, with information communication technologies, all kinds of applications and that's maybe one of the things that we're, we're perhaps most laggard on here in the U.S. is adopting those technologies in our infrastructure sector. So we don't have, I mean, it's happening, but that's maybe the biggest challenge. And, and maybe to go back to the analogy of the, of the Great Depression, that was a time, ironically, of, of great technological change, even though the economy was in the doldrums. 
uh, there have been arguments and evidence presented that there was a lot of technological change. And so what we saw in the 1940s and 50s and 60s was that the infrastructure implemented or complemented those technologies that were being developed and we had a great period of economic growth. We have that possibility again yes. because wow. there's all there's all kinds of of technology that's being developed in transportation and energy and if we can incorporate that in our investment not just the same old thing of filling potholes and adding lanes but trying to develop smart technology um, we could enjoy those gains so so Elon Musk right now is in in his uh, firms are developing new uh, light rail or magnetic rail systems right and people in pneumatic always, tubes yeah, yeah. and it, it, you know and some of these projects don't turn out <laughs> uh, some do and so it's not that we should chase after every or put money into every new idea that that uh, you know a technologist is is presenting but it just tells you we are in this moment where there are there are a lot of new technologies that are coming online and we have to think about how we can incorporate them for those of you who've just joined us you're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine streaming mm -hmm. on the web around the world at KUCI.org my guest is Daniel Bogart he's an economics professor here at UCI and we're taking up the measure of whether infrastructure investment makes sense in the at this moment and I I it's now I mean the the lending the interest rates are really good they're they're going to go up it, I mean, by increments, of course, but th they are—they're poised to to be raised. But this is this is money's kind of cheap right now. So mm -hmm. it's—I'm um, concerned about the timing as we move into some of the the funding mechanisms for uh, any kind of stimulus package to re reinvest in infrastructure. Is what oh, I ran myself way off the, to the edge there. Um, is the door going to close, and we're just going to have to look forward to really not only. Uh, more difficult campaigns just to convince the public, but just more expensive projects in this yep. public campaign. So you're exactly right that right now uh, interest rates are, are historically low and have been uh, so for at least uh, five to ten years. And this is a great opportunity um, for the U.S. And, and all global economies to invest because the, the, you know, the financing costs are a big part of, of, the, of the cost of infrastructure. And so... I'm actually on this optimistic about the medium term. I think that Why? all the signals are that interest rates will continue to be low. Two reasons for that. There's um, a lot of comps are have been talking about a global savings glut. Um, you have, I mean, just you take an economy like, like China. They have traditionally invested or saved a lot rather than consumed a lot. So as those economies grow that have a tradition of, or a, a past of saving, there's going to be a lot of resources that, that are going to come available for investment. So right now we have a tremendous pool of savings that we can draw on in the global economy. The other factor is that because of technological change, we seem to be in a, a long-run, mild deflationary environment at the moment. So it's, it's one of the most striking things is it seems like the, you know, the, 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 um, Federal Reserve can increase the money supply, but, you know, interest rates just, you know, um, they don't seem to budge. I mean, we have low interest rates. We have low inflation. And I think tech improvements in, say, energy, um, exploration, um, communication technologies, there are a lot of factors that are driving prices down. 
And so uh, I, I foresee when you have, you know, you have low inflation, that's compatible generally with low interest rates. And, and all the projections are that for the next five years, interest rates will still remain low by historic standards. So I think the window is still open. Um, and I and actually at the moment, I think there is a lot of a, a lot of projects that are being developed. So people are acting on those low interest rates. Well, uh, the American Society of Engineers, with not an exhaustive list, but a pretty <laughs> heavy list, puts it the uh, the deferred, I don't know if you call it deferred maintenance, the, the, in, the infrastructure investment opportunity or need at about $3.1 trillion. Yeah. And, and that didn't even include, I know, the telecommunications tab, which is another, you know, upgrading everything, uh, yeah. the internet in, in every uh, municipality, every household. So, so do you give it a different number? So they so just to correct you, they said they asked they recommended three point one billion I think it was something like that so I, I did a little calculation the U S economy GDP is eighteen trillion so these numbers get so large that you 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 forget what they well, mean I but basically know. they they okay. they're recommending um, right now we invest one point about one point five percent of our GDP in infrastructure they're basically recommending that we invest about two and a half percent of our GDP in infrastructure. So they're asking, they're suggesting a, a sizable um, increase. So uh, should we do that? I think, um, so I think there's, again, there's no doubt that that would generate a lot of economic benefits, but I would just say uh, we should also consider what investing another one and a half percent of GDP in health or education would do. I think that's the the question. So it's, so it's broad public sector investments. How how useful are they? And um, so we could say public sector as a whole. How useful is that? Then we could say education, infrastructure, health, and then within those sectors we could start asking about sewage, transportation, energy. So there's a there's sort of a layer of conversations. But they're basically suggesting a, a you know, seventy five percent increase over what we do right now. Yes. Well. Let's talk about mm -hmm. different funding mechanisms, and then we'll go into the whether the the mm. government has the capacity to measure best where those funds go in right. and where to put them. But because right. it, uh, you, like you said, there's capital just sitting. It's just mm -hmm. sitting in the savings banks of of the in the corporate sector. They're they're just sitting on this. So where right. where and how could this be expended? What mechanisms? Well, I mean the. The low, probably the, the lowest cost approach would be if we used the traditional mechanisms where governments uh, propose projects and they get bids from the private sector to to build them and implement them, and then the government owns that infrastructure. That's that the traditional funding method. That's probably considered the lowest cost because right now state, municipal, federal governments can borrow at very low rates. And so that, that's arguably the best thing to do. But as we've talked about, there's, there's this gridlock uh, and there's a lack of trust um, in government. And, and the, so we, and don't, we, don't, we have a hard time convincing, you know, we could say, why isn't a politician running on a, a platform of to stimulation. In, yeah. <laughs> of stimulation? So there's, there's obviously some, some challenge there. So one... One trend at the moment, um, so I, I make two, two comments. I would say one is I think we need to build more government capacity. Okay? I think we need to uh, you know, perhaps give the Department of Transportation, Department of Energy, Department of Education, 
uh, more resources, more voice, um, encourage investment in those government agencies because they're there. The experts are really picking, pro proposing projects, picking projects, working with the firms that are that are building them. And you need to have a lot of expertise. Um, and I think that would help build confidence in the public that the projects are going to be well done. Um, another thing I would say is that there is a place for the private sector to become more involved in the, either the design, the financing, or even actually the operation of infrastructure. And, you know, private sector participation is called PPP or P3. It's, it's sort of a buzzword and has been for the last 20 years. Um, yes. It's certainly not a panacea. Um, you know, it, but there are, I think, uh, cases where the, the, the private sector has a lot, first of all, they have a lot of capital. So if we can, if we can incorporate that, that capital, we're going to elevate the amount of infrastructure. Um, I also think that the private sector probably has an advantage in bringing in the new technologies that are being implemented right now. So what's going on in NASA is a very interesting case at the moment. Yes. Right, we're bringing the private sector into space exploration and they are they're definitely implementing a lot of technologies at the moment. Not all of them, unfortunately, are working, uh, but we do have a lot of technological experimentation. So I think there is there is a place for the private sector on on those grounds. Um, but, you know, we have to have we have to develop a a whole political agreement that we are going to have the private sector be involved and that they're going to you know to make this palatable to the public we're going to have to have good regulation we're going to have to have good um uh follow through uh there has to be review of what the infrastructure authorities are doing so the public doesn't feel like they're just paying another tax and perhaps even a higher tax so i think there's a there's a role for the private sector um as well, and I think we need to do more. We're behind. The United States is very much behind in the use of the private sector and infrastructure. One could argue that's because we have uh, this great system of public borrowing. We borrow at very low interest rates. A wide turn to the private sector, but I think there are some other advantages beyond just financing. Well, there was the bond, the short-lived Build America's Bonds program. Mm -hmm. So, is that, was there a, something, uh, some template there that uh, helps us? It, uh, administer the funding from the feds all the way down to the state and local levels. Well, um, so this I don't, I'm not familiar with that bill, but was that it? Was it? Did it fail in it, Congress? Or oh, is it, it, it was a, the Recovery yeah. Act. It expired. It expired. It's, okay. So it, it failed in terms of the support. The support ended. The so. sustained support. Okay, no, it was no, allowed to expire. Was, so yeah. I would just say uh, one thing related to that is that I think sometimes we think of of infrastructure as a way to generate jobs in the short run. So in the stimulus, I I really did like the discussion uh, in the, among the Obama administration about let's not let a crisis go to waste, that we should use right. this opportunity to invest in the future, not just to provide provide jobs. And so I think that's one of the things maybe where infrastructure sometimes fails because we use it just as a way to uh, stimulate the economy, which is one of the nice benefits of it. But it also has this important function of of supporting our society in in times that were you know of, of expansion or normal economic activity, and so we don't want to just think about infrastructure is good for providing jobs in the midst of recession, even though that is one of its benefits. So that's I think a good case where people re aren't really serious about thinking about what infrastructure we need. They just said, well, let's get throw some money at this sector because we'll help stimulate the economy. Well, I remember when the the peace dividend that yeah. that 
the Clinton administration had, yes. that there was a concern about the military industrial complex was going to become a, a contractor industrial complex. And there, we have to be very careful about that, that private mm-hmm. entity uh, participating and sort of pull, pulling more resources than was uh, equitable in, 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 you know, of the public's money, yeah. their use of the money. So uh, that's, but they're not, uh, uh, is that a, an issue that still looms though, that uh, they're poised? Definitely. <laughs> so that's so, where the I PPP mean, you could, is. I mean, here's the, you, there's, this is, there's so many ways in which infrastructure can go wrong. Um, so I think the Indiana Toll Road Authority is a great example. At the moment, they, they, uh, in the state of Indiana awarded this contract to maintain and operate toll roads in Indiana, and it, it, the, the, subsequently the firm went bankrupt. And that led to a lot of um, re, you know, redistribution delays. And so the, the involving the private sector introduces a whole nother range of issues and so what I would say, if we, if we do go that route, we need to really invest a lot on the public governance side. Okay, so I was earlier referring to like right. government capacity. We need to have regulated, we think a lot more about our regulatory environment, our government agencies, because they're the ones who are going to be interacting with these authorities. They're going to be designing the contracts that the private sector enters into. And you know, there's a lot of evidence that the contractual terms matter a lot. So for example, how is the how are the contracts awarded? Are they awarded in a competitive bidding environment? That matters a great deal, right? Um, you know, as sort of how effective the the project will be implemented. So, if we go private, there's a lot of risks, but but those risks arguably can be manageable if we if we invest on the on the public governance side or develop those those agencies. I guess I'm t- want to. The other part of the, let's say one of the big uh, appendages on the elephant in the middle of the room is not so much the lack of trust in government, but the wish to discredit the current administration. If that administration posts a success, then your party out of power doesn't get, uh, has a harder time pushing that administration out. So it's, so our, our campaign here to to yeah. to deepen the role of government in mediating and uh, administering this infrastructure investment is it's it's a long way. Yeah, I I think uh infrastructure is a is a very good example of a sector, a public sector that's that's probably suffering from the current political climate indeed where it's better if you make the um party if you're the opposition party, the party in power look foolish or wasteful. Uh, and rather than than supporting investments that that um, that develop your economy, so that certainly is a problem with the national politics. But you know, at the state level, arguably we have less of those types of political conflicts. So there's some possibility. In for, California, we have that luxury, but not all state yeah. governments. There's others that are. No, there isn't. But there is. I think there's more um, agreement, say, in Georgia or in Virginia or Texas um, at the state level, and even in California, about the fact that we do need to invest in infrastructure. The problem, I think, for the states is a lot of them don't have. They have balanced budget amendments. They don't have the ability to to spend a lot, and they also don't have the regulatory capacity <laughs> to really implement these projects. The federal government does, but as you say, the federal government is currently paralyzed. So that's the dilemma we're in. Paralyzed. That's the appendage on the on the elephant, definitely. So you were saying, though, it's a it's a dicey project to stratify the priorities. But do, do, do you have any 
sort of um, amongst the sectors, the roads and bridges, right, transit, right. which includes rail, energy, mm -hmm. water distribution, sewage treatment, schools, telecommunications. Right. Are there favorites in there? My favorite it would be urban transit. Okay, so it gets I, a lot I, done. Um, I'm a big fan for, uh, okay, so general feeling that I have cities are our engines of growth in the U.S. economy. And so making an, cities, the transportation networks, the sewage system, sanitation systems within cities more productive would be super valuable. So th there's an implicit critique here of the high-speed rail in California because that's connecting cities. But I see a huge need within cities. So, I th you know, it's relatively easy, I think, to get from L.A. to San Francisco by, by air right now. I think the big problem is you can't get around Los Angeles. Um, I, I, a couple years ago, I, I lived in um, the Pas South Pasadena, um, East Los Angeles area. And, and they you were the commuting here from there? No, I was, I was Before on. Before 2003? I was on sabbatical. Okay. I was on sabbatical there. Oh, that, and they, that's right, when you were at Caltech. Yeah, and they had a, the gold line, which runs from Pasadena into downtown LA, and it runs through uh, diverse neighborhood, um, some low-income areas, people who would have, a, would have a hard time affording a car and paying the parking fees in Pasadena and LA. That seemed like a wonderful system help to bring people to work at a relatively low cost i think we need to make investments like that over a lot of intercity travel okay <laughs> invest in our cities that would be my main point. and that gets the car addresses yeah. the carbon cities footprint. are the end yeah the city exactly and it has a lot of benefits and cities engine of growth deals with the carbon footprint um, and there's a lot of there's a lot of movement on this front, so I, I am optimistic about it. And the gold line is extended too. Another that's I don't right. know several miles I think is it, that's but right. that's uh, I I always dream every time I'm yeah. stuck on the 405 interstate, yeah. I'm thinking a fixed rail right down this meridian. Yeah. It's just my just gets me salivating. I think we need more in Orange County. I would also add as well. I think in Orange County on light rail we're 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 pretty deficient then you know the the train system we have runs through one section of orange county but it doesn't run through the section where most people work so and that it diminishes its utility so i would add, just locally i would add that right well i would um like to thank you for being on the show today and uh, i don't know if you have any more pitches for um you know what we're talking about but we mm -hmm. need to, to wrap up this part but dan did you have anything more to um just to add at the end? No, I, I just would say um, uh, more conversation about where we can make investments, um, more, you know, more technical analysis would be useful. You know, sort of cost economics can be boring, but there's a lot of use it using cost benefit tools to say what's a good project, what's not a good project. I think we need more of that in our discussion. Or maybe get the uh, Internet Titans to uh, look um, oh more toward innovation in infrastructure and uh you know they're they're looking at this sort of proprietary uh privacy aspect mm -hmm. but maybe get get them uh make them poster folks for innovating infrastructure installations uh, smarter technology for uh, distributing all of these these services these definitely. public goods definitely so. definitely well dan Bogard. Thank you. He's the economics professor here at UCI. We've been talking about infrastructure. And if there's any new developments, let's talk about that. We do. We've, I've had the, the high-speed rail people on several times. They want back when they've got new 
public hearings and that kind mm-hmm. of thing. And I, right. I would like nothing more than to hop on a train. I feel like it's pretty dirty. Go up in a plane, go back down in the Bay Area. And so I want to, I, I, I just think that that's, that's part of the innovation is getting a faster train moving around all over the country, but, but faster, faster surface transit as well is a big deal. Well, Dan, thanks again for being on the show today. All right. Thank you. So we'll be right back after a short break with Karen Caparasso. We're not going to put the numbers away, folks. She's going to hunker down on finances amidst the specter of student loans. We'll be right back after a short break. Oh, my goodness, look at this mess. I'm the one who made it, I do confess. Oh, my goodness, look at this mess. I think I better clean it up. Everybody sing. Welcome back to Ask a Leader. My next guest returning to the show is Karen Caparasso, Certified Financial Planner, this time talking about how to be strategic about minimizing college debt. College finance is complicated, and that's why we turn to Karen to make it make sense. Karen directs has Thank direct, you, Claudia. Uh, yes, indeed. Karen has 25 years of financial service under her belt with her background of 17 years in corporate accounting. Karen directs her expertise toward a career that combines taxes, estate planning, investments, insurance needs, and business planning. Karen graduated with a bachelor's of science degree in both finance and economics from Chapman University. And Karen assists people establish retirement accounts, college accounts for their children or grandchildren, and any other financial goal they may have. In addition, Karen knows that proper financial planning can help guard against the financial catastrophes of living too long or dying too soon. She's a member of the National Association of Women Business Owners, Women Investing in security and in investing and the National Association of Financial Planning. She is past president for two years of the of WISE. It's Women Investing in Security and Education. She is also qualified to take up today's topic of today, having successfully pushed two offspring out of the nest with college degrees <laughs> and self-sufficient careers. She comes to us today from Irvine. Welcome back to Ask a Leader, Karen. Thank you, Claudia, very much. Thanks for asking me. I'm happy to to help uh, parents and or students to to plan for for college because it can be just very daunting. And I'd like to just you know provide some ways, a little bit of information to help get through the college stress of paying for college. The student they have their own stress in trying to figure out all the classes, where to go in the very beginning, and typically the parents, they have the stress for paying for all of this. And, you know, I I also want to provide a great website before we start, just so the listeners know you don't need to try and remember everything that I'm saying, because if you go to the website, www studentaid.ed for education.gov, you can find a wealth of information on filling out the forms on all the student loan programs, and they offer video also. And in some cases on this website, there's even Braille. So there you go. That website is a tremendous source of information for everyone. Well, I'm going to start out with the very general uh, 
practices approaches. Karen, let's have you start with good household practices, a two-prong approach. Parents, economic reality teaching is a very loving message to our children. Parents showing this by active savings, deferred pleasures. It's, mm-hmm. it's the long view, but a view that has its div- dividends, does it not? Yeah, it absolutely does. And really, as a parent, I know a, a parent myself with my daughter has graduated from school. My son is in his fourth year of school. The, the being a role model is very, very important as a parent. And teaching kids how to pay themselves first, always put away for savings, always think about must-haves versus like-to-haves. We can't have everything that we want, just like Mick Jagger in the Rolling Stones <laughs> song. Uh, you don't always get what you want. It's true, and, and we have to, as adults, prioritize and think about college for our kids and how that's going to be paid for. And starting early is your best bet. And I have some clients who, and I I think that this is a great job, the saying, it takes a village. They just set up a college account early on for their kids because their kids are going to have birthday parties, holiday events, bar mitzvahs, confirmations, whatever the event is. And oftentimes, family members and friends, they, they want to give something, but they don't really know what it is that the child wants, and really the best bet is if they give maybe a small gift for the child, and then if the parents have already established a college account with it, with an account number, uh, just ask the, the family and friends to contribute to the college for their kids, because that way everyone can be involved. It does take a, a village, and the your guest will know that they're providing the f- a future for for your child. So you can set up college accounts, honestly, with as little as $250 just to open it up, and then it's always there. So starting early is very, very key, not waiting till the last minute, and really helping your kid to, your child to also partake and, and be part of the process by putting away money and just establishing a good routine savings habit, not just every now and then, but you always, you have to have some type of, some type of a plan, even if it's putting money in an envelope or some, something where you do show your child saving for the future is very, very important. And you, you just have to prioritize your needs. And the indulging our children continues onward when after their they're launched and maybe they're coming back home. It was an interesting piece that I read <laughs> recently. Is a the 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 bank of mom and dad uh, has oh, yeah. its downside because your own assets for retiring and supporting yourself uh, mm-hmm. can be very uh, can be a, a, a real problem you're creating your for, for yourself. So why is this important from what you've seen when parents need to to cover their retirement? Boy, and, and really a lot of kids, adult kids are coming back home, and it really is a struggle. Um, it's called the sandwich generation because you're trying to launch your, your kids. You, you want them to be successful. You want them to be emotionally successful and happy, and you want them 
more importantly, to be financially successful so that they can go ahead and take on all the financial responsibility that life brings. And then being a sandwich generation as well, oftentimes you may have to take care of your parents that didn't do the savings that they should have or just weren't able to do it. But it, it's, it can be a tough one, but I suggest that the, the adults, the, the parents, not forego saving for their own retirement account because that's very, very critical. I don't think any parent wants to be a burden on anyone, and so th- the best way to do that is just to make sure that the parent also has a retirement plan and that, that they pay attention to their finances and every year sit down with their financial advisor or with whoever helps them and identify do they have enough, are, are they on track, and just keep it in mind that it's, it's very important and no one wants to end up just living on Social Security, but the parents, they, you do need to do what you can to help your child be successful, and sometimes it just takes tough love. But to, you, you, as an adult, you don't want to forego your own planning and your own responsibility of planning for your retirement. And to overindulge, Claudia, that's, that's a, great, a great question because many times people live on a, a above their means, and they don't take care of basic responsibilities that they should. And you see it all the time in your practice, in your workshops, that people mm-hmm. just refuse to stare the scarcity of resources down to yeah, their Yeah, exactly, and they seem to want to live in the moment. Like, this is great, vacation, yes, I, uh, I want to go to Europe, that's perfect, I've been wanting to do that. But then everything's a trade-off. You can't have everything. If you go to Europe... Uh, are you taking from savings that you really will need um, 10, 15 years from now? Maybe instead of going to Europe, you could scale down your trip and go to Zion National Park right here in the United States, something like that. And it's everything's a trade-off, and, and um, yeah, so you just, you just need to be aware of your finances and just check in with your planner, at least annually, so you don't end up in a in a bind. Because then it's it's panic city, it it's an emotional stressful time, and that takes a toll on your health. So if you can avoid that, that's the the best route for your family, for yourself, everyone. Well, let's get on now to uh, the college tab. Parents just don't think that they should save. Um, because they're thinking that they'll be penalized by both the feds and the university's calculation in the college tab. But the reality, Mm -hmm. Karen, is that Mm -hmm. we can expect to get the free money in terms of the Pell Grant or the grant money that the college awards under its own criteria. But uh, Mm -hmm. let's Mm -hmm. talk about that myth that uh, that savings is going to all be nabbed by the the those institutions it's rather it's it's the earning is what's part of that formula that the expected family contribution is exactly and it really is it really is a myth and and i have heard that uh people want to protect their their own savings and they some for whatever reason they think that someone else the government loans or government aid is going to come to everyone's rescue and and pay for college and that's simply not the case. 
and you really do need to put away your own money. And yes, there are uh, grants, there are merit aid uh, awards from individual colleges that are given out or, or discounts, but you have to plan on bearing uh, the majority of, of that cost. And what a school will do, and again, it starts with the, the FAFSA form or the free application for federal student aid. And if you refer to that, the website that, that I, you know, gave a little bit ago. And we'll put it up on the podcast summary, so it'll always be around with the show. Oh, okay, very good. And uh, if you start with the FAFSA form, which you would prepare that for maybe in the senior year of the, of the student's uh, high school, and start to complete the information. It's, it's very detailed. You have to, as a parent, give your earnings and uh, indicate your assets, your retirement, what your mortgage loan is if you, if you own a home, what the value is. Uh, and this information, the, it's called EFC, or the Expected Family Contribution, is a number, it's a critical number, that will be used by the college to determine how much aid the student can receive. So this form, the FAFSA form, will start out with a couple of different, uh, with a, a formula which would take the cost of the college, or it's called COA, cost of attendance, and less the your, your EFC, which is what the family can contribute based on their income, and then that will determine how much aid the student may be able to receive or a loan. But it's not by any means going to pay for the full school uh, tuition. There are Pell Grants, uh, Perkins Loans, but these are for really, really needs-based, low-income families. Those would be a loan that uh, maybe not a lot of people would really actually be able to to obtain. Uh, there are different loans. There are plus loans for parents, which means uh, parent loans for undergraduate students that a parent can can take on and qualify. But then there's limits on that loan. For instance, uh, I believe it's fifty five hundred dollars a year. For the first year, fifty five hundred. Uh-huh. For the second year, sixty five hundred, and then I think seventy five hundred. Now again, these are loans. That's that's a lot of times the best that you can get, and they do carry lo- uh, low interest rates. But loans, by definition, have to be paid back. So there are different ways for a student and a parent to work together. But you have to do a little bit of research, and you certainly can't assume that you're going to be given a free a free ride, a free scholarship through college. Now there are uh based on individual based on the individual college they may hand out which they what they call merit awards. And the merit award will take a student's what would they bring to the 
what they bring to the school. Maybe, for instance, they are a fantastic violin player, and the school wants that person, wants that student for their orchestra, or they're a fantastic soccer player, or they may even have some uh, unusual hardship that they have overcome. So at the student aid or financial aid office at the school, it's good to find out about what what is available. And the school will give discounts if they, they find that the situation is worthy and, worthy and they'd like to bring that particular student in because they have a fantastic expertise. Um, but there are ways that you can get discounts. So, so maybe that's, if you can't obtain a full loan, maybe this, the parent can per, and student can pursue getting a, a discount based on a particular activity that um, the, school, the school finds to be of interest and strong desire for that student. But as a, there was an interesting article the New York Times had last Friday was that you can't, it's, gonna, it's a very difficult wager though that a parent has to make though early on. What is that special criteria that any one college, they all have different criteria for what's the standout feature yes, that, standout that brings feature, them right. for mm-hmm. that, that merit grant. So mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. It's, it's, uh, there is no guarantee and you may have no, to go in No, there really is different. not. And it could be that the school that the student wants to attend they don't have a particular need for that particular expertise of the school, so it's of a- the student. So that's correct. So then the student, if they have something that they that they really shine in, then they may need to just look around and find a school that, that may have a, a reason and real desire to take that student on. But but again, that's there's no guarantee in any of this. It's just it's some planning, and the the parents should bear the responsibility and the risk, uh, not risk, but bear the responsibility of putting money away, and pri- primarily, and then secondarily, look for student aid, student loans. Um, you know, some parents they take out home equity loans. Uh, to help their student, but then again, back to that loans yeah. they have to be paid back. Right, right. For those of you, uh, we're going to run over a little bit. I'm sorry about that, listeners. Uh, my guest for this uh, portion of the show is Karen Caparasso. She's a certified financial planner. We're talking about strategic financing around the college tab that looms. And uh, I just want to wrap up quickly about the the expected family contribution. It also is leaving savings largely alone because the mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the anticipation is that there may be other members Kids, of the household that correct. will go all be go also go, be going to college that it doesn't really touch the retirement accounts and it's not mm-hmm. necessarily going after your it's a portion of the home asset so um i i i, I know that uh, besides consulting you also hang a, a shingle out for workshops for young adults to acquire this uh, greater financial literacy we're talking about do you want to give us a little bit about what's coming up in the pike here Oh, yeah, correct. Thanks, Claudia. Um, I, I help, stu- I, and I have given a lot of workshops for uh, teenagers. And the group, uh, I was president uh, for two years for WISE, which is Women Investing in Security and Education. And I was uh, in charge of the WISE Choices Program, which was a program geared for teenage girls um, of how, how to 
plan for their financial future, how to uh, pay, pay yourself first, always think about putting money away, how to understand say, present value for, and future value of money and how starting early for savings and just getting in the habit. You just have to just get in the habit of doing it. Just like paying your utility bill every month, you have to pay yourself every month. And so it was a program geared for teaching uh, kids how about money because typically in the schools, uh, unlike Nevada, they don't teach that much about money and savings and retirement and loans and all those issues that you're faced with uh, as an adult. So uh, I really enjoy that. Um, in addition to, uh, yes. Claudia, I wanted to mention, I also do a lot of divorce work. I do the financial help couples in the throes of divorce to identify their all their assets, liabilities, and all the support issues that will will take place supporting two households now instead of one. And divorce is very, very common. And part of that has to do with college for for their kids, because now you have two parents that can't live together. They don't want to affect the kids, but. It's a little difficult when you now have two two households, but I always bring up college in in the splitting of assets, and I I talk about that because I don't want that to be pushed aside while they're taking care of all the other issues that are going on in their life. You know, what about college? Um, do you have savings for for your son, for your daughter, and let's. You know, let's maybe add that into the plan too. So, yes, yes. college so. is always something that parents need to talk about, need to think about, and it takes a village. So, I just wanted to point that out in my mediation practice, in uh, specific to divorce, college is always, always a topic. Well, I'm so glad that you were able to break lots of this down, demystify, take away, take out the myth. Karen, I'm so glad that you are available. Karen Caprasso is a certified financial planner with a word or two about planning, bank heading, beach heading your assets so that you can resolve what you need to be secure and make sure that your children have as many choices as possible. I'm Thank you so much for being on the show, Thank Karen. you, Claudia. I appreciate Thanks it. Thanks a lot. And next week on the show, it's all about art, both at the Laguna Art Museum. They're going to have some really interesting outdoor installations at the end of next week. And I'm hoping that the Orange County Museum of Art, we get to talk about their amazing installation with the American interpretation of the Quran. Thanks for listening, everybody. Californian girls When the lights go out And the rest of the world What do our cousins say? They're flying in the sun And having fun, fun, fun Till daddy takes the gun